Blessings to you, and welcome to another issue of Witnesses of the King. Witnesses of the King is an exposition of the book of Acts. We're going chapter by chapter through the book of Acts, looking at the great events that happened there as it unfolded as the early church got its start. And so we're seeing a great number of things that are that are terribly exciting in the book of Acts. A great adventure uh, is found there in the in the burgeoning early church, in the adventures of Peter and his great preaching, and then the Apostle Paul and his great preaching and his missionary journeys. And now his missionary journeys are kind of coming to an end. We find ourselves in Acts chapter 21 today. And in Acts chapter 21, we're seeing the inevitability of Paul's journey toward Jerusalem. And we're seeing how in ways it has parallels to the passion of Christ as he set his face toward Jerusalem to, to move toward there to his destiny on the cross. Paul is now heading to Jerusalem, convinced in the spirit that he must go there and then eventually somehow go to Rome. Uh, but nevertheless, knowing in the spirit that difficulties await him. So we're going to pick this action up in Acts chapter 21. We're going to look at a very important dilemma that we must solve, a thing that we must wrestle with in the scripture and come to some kind of conclusion. And when we do, we're going to be greatly encouraged by what we find. So in Acts chapter 21, let's take a look at the scripture and let's put it first and foremost here. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 14. This is one of the we passages in which it indicates that Luke, the author of the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke, is actually with Paul and the others at this time. And so he says here in his uh, Holy Spirit-inspired first-person account, he says, When we had parted from them and set sail, that is from the leaders of Ephesus, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed there with them for one day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. But Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Well, let's begin then with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for bringing us together 
in this time for Lord, just for carving out the opportunity for us to, to get to share the scripture in this way. Lord, as we open the scripture, I pray that you'll, we will just work past the weaknesses of the speaker, the weaknesses of the hearer. Lord, help us to surrender to those things we learn there, to accept them as they are, your word and your truth, and Lord, to employ them in the benefit of your kingdom in our lives. We thank you, Lord. We praise you, and we ask you now to be with us as we learn together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there we have a fascinating uh, bunch of scriptures, and I want to show you just what the, the journey looks like here as we get toward the end of the missionary journey. If you look at the bottom of the screen, the red and white line, uh, as he comes from, the, uh, from Greece in that area and then from Asia Minor, uh, he is traveling toward Jerusalem, which is on the bottom right. And he, uh, they hit land there, and then they move across the land, and they're going up to Jerusalem. So, uh, an important part of the journey, an important thing. And as we come together, we want to point out some very important things here. Let me get back here and uh, show you the scriptures here. Uh, Paul, in the Spirit, is going to Jerusalem. Now, knowing full well, also in the Spirit, what's to happen there. And I think the best way to really show this is to illustrate it for you here as we take a look here. Look, there's two verses here that indicate that Paul is in the Spirit, as you see highlighted there, going to Jerusalem and also knowing that he must go after that to Rome. And notice here in chapter 20, verses 22 and 23, he says to the Ephesian elders, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. And also he says the Holy Spirit testifies to me that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And so here is Paul's case that he's making. And he's making this case appealing to the work of the Holy Spirit himself. Now, on the other hand, what we saw today in chapter 21, Paul's companions make this case. In verse 4, Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And then in verse 11, we see coming to us, this man, Agabus here, took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So we have some problems here, and I hope the dilemma has been obvious to you at this point. In two verses, we have Paul appealing to the Holy Spirit in support of his decision to go to Jerusalem, and yet indicating danger. And if we look more closely, we see in chapter 20, verse 16, they hasten past Ephesus, illustrating his own determination and even his urgency to go to Jerusalem. And in chapter 20, even though the Ephesian elders are weeping and sorrowful, it does not dissuade him from going. And in chapter 21, even though they all are telling him, don't go, he goes. So Paul is thoroughly convinced and appealing to the Holy Spirit here. But here's the dilemma. Paul's companions are warning him in the spirit. And this is something that's very difficult for people to understand because they see here a conflict. And here's the look at the conflict. It's two verses, verses, two verses on your screen there. 
And you could make a case that maybe Paul's is three verses because 22 and 23 go together, although one is just an appeal to the danger that will happen. And so take a look uh, a little more closely at these verses as I highlight a few things, okay? Here Paul is in the Spirit saying that he's going to Jerusalem, that he must go to the Jerusalem by the orders of the Holy Spirit. And here he says, constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. So that's two times he appeals to the Spirit for his desire to go to Jerusalem. Then we come over here, his companions tell him not to go to Jerusalem through the Spirit. So if you look at it that way, it's two to one. Paul has the edge here. Two times constrained in the Spirit or in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem and then one time against him to not go. So Paul wins it here. But if we look at the sheer number of people, we have the Ephesian elders in chapter 20. We have Luke and everyone who was with Paul in chapter 21 telling him not to go. So Paul is strictly outvoted there. So how do we solve this issue? We have a problem here. We have Paul versus the others, both appealing to the Holy Spirit. The, act, the other verses actually agree just to say that bad things will happen. Is God then divided? Is the Holy Spirit conflicted? Is God sending mixed messages here? These are important things to think about because if indeed, as we believe, the, the scriptures to be completely inspired by the Holy Spirit, in other words, holy men like Luke and the others who wrote the scriptures were carried along by the Holy Spirit, which was acting through the will of the, the people writing the spirits or writing the scriptures and through their own particular personalities and their situations and everything else, nevertheless, superintending the process. So we have the Holy Spirit represented as telling Paul to go and not telling Paul to go. Is God divided? Now, the only thing that I could reason through and come up with is if the Holy Spirit is both telling Paul to go, if we're taking the scripture as inspired, we're taking it at face value that Paul is genuinely being told by the Holy Spirit of God, not some other evil spirit, to go to Jerusalem, and on the other hand, his friends are told by that same spirit to tell him not to go. The only possible thing that makes any sense to this reader of the scripture is that Paul's resolve to go, as ordered by God, is being tested. Now, this brings up another difficult question. Does God test his people? This is a very good question that I think a lot of people struggle with. Does God really test his people? And when he does test them, that implies always some kind of suffering, whether the suffering is a temptation to sin or whether the testing comes in the form of a great difficulty they have to endure. The question has to come, why do Christians suffer? Why would God allow this to happen? Why would God allow Paul to go to Jerusalem and, spoiler alert, read the rest of the book of Acts, gets arrested, spends years in prison there on the coast, uh, not too far away, and eventually appeals to Rome, and he goes to Rome while imprisoned, while chained to a guard, and suffers shipwreck and snakebite and difficulty and winters uh, in, a, in a foreign place. All this 
just because he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Why would God put him through that? Now, this wouldn't be such a dilemma if it were not for the existence of so many false teachers in the world today. Many people argue that Paul was wrong to go to Jerusalem, and they argue this based not upon what Scripture says, based not upon any verse in the book of Acts or any of his letters that implies that he was going against God. They rather simply appeal to the results. They say, well, he went to Jerusalem, bad things happened. Bad things don't happen to God's people, therefore Paul was wrong to go. Well, this is faulty logic. This ignores the balance of Scripture, which shows very plainly that bad things happen to God's people, that it rains on the just and the unjust in this world, that difficulties come in the lifetime of believer and non-believer alike, and that the promises for the people of God are long-term promises. They are not promises for being healthy and wealthy and prosperous this side of heaven. They are promises to prosper in the work of God. They are promises to have joy and peace and the fruit of the Spirit and all the benefits and blessings of being a child of God, but no guarantees except for your very basic necessities being met for those who seek first the kingdom. So the questions that we ought to be asking is this, why would God's people be tested? And why would God's people even suffer at all to broaden it out more broadly? Well, let's look at the first reason here. The first reason is for sanctification. God's people suffer as a part of the refining process. We know that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, it is but the beginning of a journey toward Christ-likeness. In other words, we are not instantly different overnight. Now, for many people, their conversion experience brings great change immediately. I have seen people immediately give up addictions that they've had for years and sins that they've struggled with for a long time, just able immediately by the power of the Spirit to, to turn those things over and give them up. But for most of their life, it is a process, and it is a process of great difficulty sometimes, of giving things over to the Lord, of trusting in Him more, of allowing Him to cleanse us of impurity. Is that not the promise that John gives in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, when he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And everyone's familiar with that part, but then he goes on. And to purify us from all unrighteousness. In other words, as we go through our lives confessing our sins, he is purifying us of those sins. He is delivering us from the power of sin over our lives. And so part of that sanctification process is suffering and testing and difficulty. But this is the biblical way. This is what we see. Look in James chapter 1 here. We're going to visit the scriptures on several of these issues. James says this about trials. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Is that not radical thinking in and of itself? He goes on, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing here james clearly connects trials that is testing he uses both words here as having a result of steadfastness which ultimately 
is part of our perfecting process. Look how Paul states it in the book of Romans. He says, um, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now that's as radical as what James said, knowing that suffering produces endurance, a similar sentiment to what James says, but he's going to go on. He says, and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so Paul actually puts that sufferings should end in hope. And that is a realization of the, the Spirit of God being poured into us, the love of God being poured into us. Look in Revelation chapter 2, in the words of Jesus himself to the church there, he says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life clear reference by Jesus that indeed he does test his people. Look in Hebrews chapter 11 verses 17 through 19. This is the famous hall of faith in which the book of Hebrews as it reaches its climax toward the end in convincing people not to turn away from the ways of Christ but to embrace Christ as the fulfillment of all the great promises of the Old Testament. The author of the book of Hebrews brings the people of old in front of us, parades them past, and shows that their faith resulted in good works. And look what it says about Abraham here. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. In other words, Abraham being told by God to go, go offer up his son Isaac, the only son through whom he had promised everything, was a test and we know it was a test because he ultimately didn't allow Abraham to go through with it, but allowed him to go to the point that he was. He was resolved to. He'd raised the knife in the air. He was going to slay his son and God stopped him. Why? Because it was only a test. God's the one who was going to be giving his son for sins. So really fascinating and wonderful thing that we've learned here is that this is normal, that suffering and that testing and the trials, whatever you want to call them, in the life of a believer are normative for our sanctification process. That is the setting apart of us for the work of God, conforming us to the image of his son. God's people have always suffered and that suffering has always resulted in improvement. But these trials are also a great sorting out. Remember, I've said in every way, we're talking about God's people here. Those who are not God's people, they fail these tests. Look at Cain. When Cain made up an offering, God was not pleased with the offering because Cain's heart wasn't right about the offering. He didn't bring the right kind of thing. He didn't bring it in the right kind of manner. And so God did not approve. And this was a great testing of Cain because Cain had to deal with this. And God told him, he said, look, if you do right, won't you be accepted? This was a test for Cain. And what did he do? Rather than repent of what he had done wrong, and rather than seek the Lord for how to do right, Cain slew his brother out of jealousy and anger. He failed the test. Why? Because he was not God's people. 
He failed that test. Now, God's people occasionally stumble and occasionally fall, but they ultimately return. They are ultimately brought back to God through repentance, when God grants repentance to them and they can be restored. We are a work in progress, and affliction is a powerful shaping tool. And this is a great sorting out. Now, I want to go to 1 Peter, which we're going to be in 1 Peter a lot today, because he speaks greatly on this issue of suffering and glory even. Look at this connection between suffering and glory in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. He says, in this you rejoice in what? Well, in the salvation provided by God. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Did you notice the repetition of the word glory here? That suffering, that this testing will result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That we indeed will be filled with joy and filled with glory as we obtain the outcome of our faith, as we persevere through trials and difficulty, then we glory in Christ and what he has done. So we go through difficulties and trials as people. Paul is going through this difficulty and this trial, this warning, this testing on his way to Jerusalem. Why? For sanctification. And this sanctification then, and this process then leads to glory. Let's take a look at some of the scriptures that we can explore here. Suffering to glory is a theme of scripture, where we begin with suffering and we move to glory. And this is a common thing that we see. It happened with Jesus Christ, who, who suffered rejection and the cross and everything else, but then ultimately was glorified by being raised from the dead, by ascending into heaven, will return in might and power, and, and then receive all glory and honor as all things are put in subjection under him. That is suffering to glory. We saw it with the people of Israel who were in bondage but brought out and given the promised land, who were in exile but were returned and then received their Messiah. There is this constant suffering to glory. Look how Jesus puts it regarding himself in Luke chapter 24. He comes along two of his disciples. He's Jesus has been resurrected. These disciples heard about it, but they left Jerusalem anyway. He meets them along the road. And then he explains to them through the scriptures this in verse 26. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? In other words, Jesus said it's necessary that he would suffer before coming into glory. This is how Jesus saw it. This is how the author of the book of Hebrews saw it. And here, the author of the book of Hebrews connects it from Jesus to Jesus' people, from Jesus the Lord to his disciples, from the king to the members of the kingdom. Look how this is transferred to us. He says, if it was not to angels 
that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Whose feet? The Son of Man's feet. This is about the Son of Man being glorified, that he suffered and then he was glorified. Now look how he goes on. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. In other words, right now, we're not seeing Jesus in control of everything, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It was fitting for whom and by that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. In other words, Jesus' suffering had to come before the glory of his people could come. This is the process. This is the biblical pattern that's laid out, and it includes the people of God. For he who sanctifies, that is, Jesus, or God, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise and again I will put my trust in him and again behold I and the children God has given me therefore since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of the death that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There's the suffering. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he has had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He is saying, Jesus suffered and we suffered. Jesus was glorified and then that glory, he delivers us. And so we follow the pattern that Jesus did, suffering and then glory. And so in this time and this side of eternity, we suffer for a little while. But let's put that suffering in perspective. Looks how Peter handles this in 1 Peter chapter 4. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This is how we know we're on the path, that we're suffering for Christ's sake. Now, at the end, in some of our encouragements, we'll see we want to suffer for the right reasons, but we'll get to that as Peter does here briefly. But I also want to help you put this suffering in perspective. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. In Romans 8, 18, he says this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, so he's acknowledging the sufferings we have, he's being real here about the sufferings we have, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul plainly acknowledged suffering in the life of believers. 
Paul accepted the suffering in his own life. He said, I'm ready to go to Jerusalem, even to die, if that's necessary. Now, he didn't die in Jerusalem. He did die at the hands of the Romans some years later. But he had the reality of suffering in the Christian life, and he put it in this perspective. All the suffering of this life is not worthy to be compared to the glory of in other words, the downside, the temporary nature of our sufferings in this life compared to an eternity perfected with the perfect Christ himself for all of forever and a day is not a worthy comparison. They can't be measured. If you try to measure the glory that is to be revealed in us, if you try to measure the, the great things and, and the, the wonderful experiences we have for in all eternity with Jesus and the new heaven and new earth, being with him in his presence in the new Jerusalem, and we try to compare that to the sufferings of this present age, the sufferings of this present age can't even be seen on that scale. And this is so the point that I'm trying to make here and that Paul is making in Romans chapter 8. These things aren't even worthy for comparison. Someday we're going to see him as he is, according to the Apostle John. And we're God's children now, but what we will be has not yet been made plain to us. It's not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Eternity in a new heaven and new earth, the sins of our lives wiped away, our hearts perfected, our idolatrous and sinful and tempted hearts perfect, perfected, temptation no more, tears wiped away in the very presence of the Lord himself. He who we now only see dimly, we will experience the full weight of his glory. This is the purpose of suffering, is to bring us to glory. It's part of the process that God has ordained for his Christ, that God has ordained for Christ's people. And so many great scriptures here regarding his glory. So what do we do with what we've learned today? There's so many things to experience and to know here. And I want to share with you just a few. And they're primarily from 1 Peter chapters 4 and 5. In conclusion, we can say this. God does test his people. God wanted Paul to go to Jerusalem in order to suffer. This was the way it was from the very beginning with Paul, even from his call. Look what the Lord says to Ananias, who was sent to heal Paul of the blindness that God inflicted upon him at his revelation. The Lord said to him, go for he, that is Saul at the time, who's Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Oh, that's good. You know, so you're, you're hearing Paul's situation. Oh, he's the chosen instrument to go before the Gentiles. He's going to speak to kings and, and to the children of Israel. This is a great and an awesome opportunity. It's a great privilege to do this. But look what he says in verse 16. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul's call from the very beginning included suffering. So does the call of each and every believer. For we will suffer in this age. If you are listening to television preachers and you are reading books 
that are trying to convince you that everything about the Christian life should be happy and should be roses and should be fulfilling and easy. You need to throw them in the trash. You need to turn the channel. You need to do whatever it takes to get away from those things because that is false teaching. The New Testament, the entire Bible plainly presents that the people of God suffer, but they suffer for good reasons. They suffer for good reasons, that God is accomplishing in them his great glory. He is bringing them to glory, but the road goes through suffering. Think about Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In those days, shepherding worked this way. The sheep followed the shepherd. The shepherd trained them to do so. So if you, his sheep, are in the valley of the shadow of death, you are there because you followed him there. You are suffering and you are in difficulty because he has led you there. And you might respond and you might say, no, that's not right. God would never do such a horrible thing. No, you have to ask, why? Why has he led you there? If you are suffering and having difficulty right now, the question is this, why are you there? You are there so that because you are following your good shepherd and he is going to bring you out of that valley of the shadow. And when you come out of the valley of the shadow, the blinding light of day and the joy that he has set before you will be blinding in contrast to it. And you will look back and you will see the goodness and sweetness of God as he carried you through those times. The famous poem, Footprints, needs yet another stanza. The poem, Footprints, if you're familiar with it, someone looks back in their lives as it, you know, footprints across time, footprints through the sand as they're likened to in the poem. And they say, you know, sometimes even in the most difficult part of my lives, I saw only one pair of footprints. And the Lord responds, that's the times that I carried you. And I would add another stanza to what is a good poem because it's true. He's always with us and he even carries us through the difficult times. I would add another one. I'd say you see those where you've got the two footprints and then the two trenches. Yeah, that's when I had to drag you. So the goodness of God is to carry us through those times, not to carry us around the valley of the shadow of death. Go through the valley of the shadow and he is with you and you will experience him like you've never experienced him before. He brings his people through, and that is the promise that we have. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13 here, and look at some of these things. Uh, first of all, rejoice, knowing that this is part of the process. He re says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This is just part of the process. But there's a warning that Peter gives here. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Now, this goes right along with what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when you are reviled for my name's sake. Okay? Uh, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So see the suffering to glory here again. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. So in verse 15 here is this warning, don't suffer for doing evil. 
what we're talking about in this context is we're talking about the kind of suffering that comes when we're actually obeying God, when we're actually doing what we're supposed to be doing, when we're fulfilling the Great Commission, we're seeking Him, we're devoted to Him, we're working among His people in the local church, we're exercising the gifts He's given us. You know, this is the suffering that comes along when you're basically doing things right. This is not the kind of suffering like going to prison for a DUI. It's a mistake that you made. It's a sin you committed. And if you're suffering for the sin, that is not glory to God and that is not helpful to you. He's saying don't, don't invite suffering by being an evildoer. In other words, don't, don't go pound people over the head with your Bible demanding conversion and then wonder why you're in prison for assault. Okay, do things right and proper in their proper order, in their proper way. Don't suffer for doing evil, but don't be ashamed to suffer. And look at verse 16 here. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Don't be ashamed, for you are in good company. That the apostle Paul suffered, indeed all the apostles suffered, for their faith and for giving testimony of Christ. Think of St. Peter who was stoned to death for telling the truth to his own people. And think of our Lord Jesus himself who came to his own but his own did not receive him. This is an important truth. Do not be ashamed to suffer. And this is something that we need to work out in the church because we all have difficulties. We all suffer, but so many of us we put on the nice clothes and the happy smile and the good face when we come to church on Sunday. And we don't tell others. We don't share our sufferings with them. The church, the people of God, is the place where God has decided you need to be ministered to. He has designed all of his blessings to come through the people of God. This is why Jesus gave as a distinctive attribute of his people that they would love one another. That's how the world knows who they are. They love one another. Jesus said it in John 13. And so, don't be ashamed to suffer. Share your sufferings with others. And if they don't act appropriately, they don't encourage you, they don't help you through there, they don't bring the word of God to you, find other believers in Jesus Christ who will. Because it is God's design for you to not suffer alone. So much easier to get through it together. Entrust yourself then to God. Verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Trust him. He rose Jesus from the dead and that same power is available to you in his Holy Spirit. And it doesn't mean it's just going to come from within you. That Holy Spirit occupies the hearts of those believers around you. And many times God is going to minister to you through these other believers. If you do not have access to other believers, you might not know the full extent of God's power and will for you. And so you need to get connected with people, with the people of God. Now he goes on and he addresses the elders here. And he gives the elders some advice. It's actually good for any of us as he closes his letter. Look here in verse 6 as we start this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. These people were facing trials and difficulties, and Peter writes this letter, and that's why so much of it's relevant to this topic. 
they suffer for being believers in Jesus Christ. And he says the first thing that you really need to do in that situation is humble yourselves, therefore. And he's saying, under the mighty hand of God. Peter himself here is acknowledging that God is sovereign over the trials and difficulties that they come into the believer's life only at his hands. And so they, he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humility is the key to getting through the difficulties. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because I'm strong? Why? Because I can find it within myself to, to kind of cinch up, you know, gird up the loins, as it says, cinch up the belt, get myself together, stand up straight, and bully through it? That's not what the scriptures say. I will fear no evil. Why? Because God is there with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He is walking us through the difficulties. Therefore, we must humble ourselves. Humble ourselves in order to receive that which he has for us. We must humble ourselves in order to cast all anxieties on him. We'll cast all our anxieties on God when we are humble enough to understand he is to carry those not us. And then he gives many other encouragements that I'll leave it to you to study and to learn in these following verses. Being sober-minded, watchful, um, your adversary the devil prowls around. Resist him. Resist the devil. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You hear that? Peter wants you to know you're not alone in this. And he says, and after you've suffered a little while. I love math. Math was created by God. I know a lot of you don't like math, okay? But there are certain kinds of math that you know, that you understand. And you understand division. You understand dividing one number by another number. You understand if you divide a great big number by a little number, you still end up with a number that's relatively big. If we put the length of our lives, assuming our entire life was horrible suffering, and we put the length of our lives in years over the number of years that we will spend with the Lord Jesus after our resurrection, what will that number look like? Let's say just by means of really good health, we live to be 90 years old. How many years are we going to be with the Lord? Tens of thousands, millions of years. If you get my point, you understand that really we're going to spend an infinite amount of time from this point forward with the Lord Jesus Christ. Our lifetime over that quantity essentially is zero. It is so tiny. That's why Paul said the present sufferings aren't worthy to compare to the glory that will be revealed. And Peter's saying the same thing. He says, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. See, he's comparing the two. You've suffered a little while, but he's called you to eternal glory in Christ. He's going to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look what Peter is saying here. Who is doing the restoring? Who is doing the confirming? Who is doing the strengthening? Who is doing the establishing? But 
Jesus Christ, the one who has perfect love, the perfect love that took him to the cross for his friends, the perfect love that suffered before glory, the one with the power to raise himself from the dead, the one with the power to rule all nations as they are all put in subjection under his feet, the one who ultimately will rule forevermore. His power and his love are going to accomplish for you restoration, confirmation, strengthening, and he will establish you. Trust, therefore, in him. Yours is not to confirm yourself, to restore yourself, to strengthen yourself. Yours is to trust him who does so. This is the work of Christ, and ours is but to believe and to follow. So believe and follow and be encouraged because the Lord knows that we suffer and he brings us through it and he is with us in the midst of it and he will confirm and establish us at the end of it. Let him have dominion and glory forever. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you because you indeed, Lord, are worthy of all praise and glory and honor. You indeed have done these things, these wonderful things that you have accomplished through your servant Paul and through all your servants today. Lord, I pray that you will just reach out and minister to those that are listening, that are suffering, that are having difficulty at the hands of any manner of thing in their lives. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage them and strengthen them and establish them, Lord. Make yourself known. Make yourself glorified, encourage, and strengthen. Lord, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your word and this encouragement. We thank you, Lord, that like the servant Paul, we can set our face toward the difficulties that we have, and we can march faithfully toward them, Lord, knowing that we are in your hands and that we have you on the other side. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you found that helpful today. I encourage you to contact us if you can. Uh, you contact us uh, and find out more about us at whitethrun.org. You can email me at whitethrunbaptist at gmail.com. And I will answer those emails personally, and I will get back to you with responses. If you have questions or concerns, you want clarification, you want help finding a church in your area, we can do all those things. Just contact us, reach out, because it is through the people of God that you're going to receive ministry. Uh, through a video, if you never reach out, if you never have personal contact with people, I can't guarantee that, that you're going to have that presence of God that you would otherwise in his design the church. So God bless you and may you be found faithful at his coming.